Welcome to episode 28 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. Welcome to episode 28 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. I'm Jay Jacobs. And I'm Bob Rudis. And this episode, we'll be talking with uh, two wonderful guests later on in the episode, talking to them about uh, their upcoming book called How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity, Doug Hubbard and Richard Syerson. But before we get to that, Bob, I wanted to ask you, you recently took a trip and uh, went to a unconference, which was pretty interesting. And why don't you talk about what that was and, and a little bit about your experience? Sure. So uh, it, the, the other week, I uh, actually a, a little while ago, I got invited by the R Open Sci Foundation, um, and if anybody is not familiar with them, uh, just like Google R Open Sci, and you'll get to them pretty quickly. You'll find out uh, who they are, what they do. Uh, it's it's a group of folks who uh, put together uh, a grant to actually start this foundation, and what they're doing is trying to make research in the sciences, all of them, which would include cyber to a degree, I guess, more reproducible, more accessible, make APIs more accessible, make data more accessible. Uh, you know, basically just try to make sure that scientists have the support they need to to get the research that they, they want to get done done in an effective manner. I was shocked that they actually invited me out to their on-conference because it, it is invite-only. And uh, it was in this awesome little spot uh, in San Francisco. Uh, we, we actually bought between there and, and GitHub headquarters, which the GitHub headquarters is also freaking amazing, too. And uh, I got to meet people that I've only hung out with on Twitter or, or on GitHub or other digital places before. And uh, it was probably one of the best ex conference or unconference experiences I have actually ever had, Jay. So what is a unconference? Because it wasn't a conference, it was an unconference. Yeah, so it was two days of uh, a hackathon. And it was kind of cool because it was a hackathon for us folks that may not be 21 years old and able to stay up 24 hours or 48 hours straight. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, we, we actually, uh, we, we got there. We, we got a, a good meet and greet. Uh, Hadley Wickham was there, which was awesome. Jenny Bryan was there, which was awesome. And everyone else was awesome. But I got to point out those two out because those two are folks that I, I follow on Twitter because of just how brilliant they are. And... After the whole meet and greet, it was a uh, uh, we had already put issues up on GitHub of different projects that we might want to work on, and we did a little bit of a voting uh, shtick to figure out which projects different teams are going to work on. We separated into teams, and the the goal over the two days was to produce as many really good packages or outcomes because some some of them were actually just doing specifications for things uh, as possible. Um, you know, get a good first start so we could kind of do more stuff, and they got put under the R Open Site Labs. Uh, get GitHub accounts. It was like two days of working with groups of people to crank out packages that actually could do something different or useful that already did, that did not already exist. I guess that that seems like that could go either way in that one, right? It might be really awesome, or it might be kind of a, a letdown. Yeah, I mean, it was I, the the I'm I can see why it might have been invite only, and and I'm I'm not I, I'm this is not hubris because I actually still don't know how I got invited to the thing. But uh, the, they, um, the, these were some of the smartest people that I have ever had an opportunity to, to work with. And I stayed with a, these, like, we, our group stayed together from, from the morning of the one day to, to the end of the whole thing to work on uh, something that turned out that we, we had a small, uh, small idea for and expanded into something a lot bigger. And, uh, other people split into different groups of different things. But I think because there were all different people on a mission to, make things better and they were all super great R coders and general coders in, in general and good thinkers. 
that it worked out well. And there were folks from every conceivable science discipline that was out there. So it's not that they were all the same kind of thing or, or hung out in the same kind of circles that way, too. This was a bunch of diverse people who really just care a lot coming together and, you know, really, you know, top of their game and, and doing things really, really well. So I, I think it does have the potential if you just put a, a bunch of random people together and, and maybe try to do this. But I think because of the nature of, of how they selected folks, uh, that, 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 that might have been one reason why it worked better than otherwise. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so well, so folks should check out the uh, like the ARP and Sci, uh labs to see what all the different stuff the folks worked on. And if you want to find cool weather data in a really interesting way, you can go look at our project, which we expanded on the RNOAA package to kind of do stuff out there because like, weather is kind of one of the cool things I like to work with too. And we worked with a bunch of crazy Australians, which is one of the better – like this was actually a – they they were remote. So we even got a chance to work remotely with folks on this one too, and it was it was a ton of fun. So And that's R open sci, and that's the letter R, the word open, and sci as in science, S-C-I. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Cool. We found some pretty cool papers this past time since the last podcast, and we don't always find some cool papers to look at and share, but we found we found two really interesting ones, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I'm excited about both of them. Uh, the, the, so I'm going to steal the first one from you because it's actually really – it's about visualization stuff. But it, it uh, for folks that are in cyber, one of the biggest things that we have to communicate is uncertainty, and it's really hard to do that. It's, it's, it's a known problem of it being very difficult to communicate uncertainty. And there's a paper uh, from a group of folks, Matthew Kay, Tara Cole, I'm probably destroying that, that pronunciation – uh, Jessica Hallman and Sean uh, Munson from Tufts University and University of Washington, and it's called "When Ish Is My Bus," <laughs> and uh, it's it's a great. It, and so what, I'm going to link to this so you guys don't have to Google it, but uh, it's a it's a great name. Uh, it's a totally readable paper, and the visualizations are really interesting. And so it's not it's yeah. not not a site. It's not a cyber paper. But it's they, they give examples of how to communicate uncertainty, and they they're they're talking about it in the context of displaying it on mobile screens, which is where pretty much everybody's faces are in these little you know little rectangles that glow, and they but they show different ways of communicating uncertainty in some ways that I hadn't seen before or thought of seeing or thought of doing before, and it was a great way to rethink how you think about uncertainty and want to present uncertainty. I thought. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely fabulous. And the the great thing about this paper, as you mentioned, is that just the the, the visualizations in this paper are not the typical academic, I, I crunched this out on whatever stats tool I was using. This is like someone put some thought into these visualizations. And it's really, really nicely done just from a visual perspective. Yeah, I mean, and for folks out there, like figure five, and you'll see this because, we'll, well, again, we're linking to it, uh, where they kind of show differences between density plots and dot plots and density dot plots and, and stripe plots or strip plots. Yeah, they're different. Like You can actually get a good comparison. And if it doesn't cause you to say, ooh, maybe I could do this, you should reread the paper again because it will cause you to do that if you actually see it. I want to back up, though, and talk about why this type of thing is really important. Because what, I mean, what they talk about in the paper is when is the bus going to arrive? And for anybody who's ever waited for a bus, I mean, it's, it, it might be 10 minutes after the hour or it might be 11 or 12 or 4 or 16, right? There's going to be some variation when the bus actually shows up. And so what they're trying to do is to give, uh, trying to communicate that uncertainty. So at 10 after, that's most likely when it's going to show up, but there's a chance it's going to be nine after, 11 after. And so trying to show that, trying to communicate the uncertainty. And if you imagine, you know, the classic bell curve where, you know, you've got this peak in the middle and the and it kind of goes down from there. So that peak would be at the 10 minutes after and the, the how wide or how flat 
depends on how accurate that bus is. You know, if it's a really long route, it might get really flat towards the end of the trip. Uh, you know, a lot of variance. And that's, we have this problem, uh, a, a large amount in cybersecurity, trying to pick out these numbers and we're, we're picking up things from machines. And if you think computers are supposed to be deterministic, we shouldn't have a lot of variance. Absolutely not true. We've got so much variance. And even on top of that, we just have natural uncertainty built into the data because we're always grabbing just a sample uh, or you know we, we have to deal with some sort of a, a bias in the data we're getting. And so we're trying to, to pick up this stuff and visualize and communicate uncertainty in everything we're looking at. And so I think this paper is so critical to talk about and bring these topics up for discussion. Yeah, totally. I mean, this the, I think this will really help folks that may be seeing event data come in or vulnerability data that they work with or patching information or, mm -hmm. or other things that they have that they might want to be trying to communicate um, just how widespread some of the thing is or how, how diverse some of it is and may not have been able to before. And this could really spur some ideas for how you could communicate that a little bit better within your organizations. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned um, vulnerability data. I mean, just imagine CVSS with uh, uncertainty factor. You know, hey, this is a 5.4, but because of the uncertainty, we're gonna create this distribution and, you know. <laughs> Just the, the complexity that would add. I mean, there's a reason that CVSS is a single number and, and a lot of things are a single number, but. Yeah, exactly. And and if we, if there were more, if we weren't relying solely on just the, the static numeric representations of what that is, which is what the schema kind of forced that's, in, that's into, but if there was a, you know, a visual presentation of that, uh, that actually you could see that uncertainty in the range and, and communicate it in an interesting way. It might help folks understand why they need to do things like apply the CVSS formula to their particular areas within their organization versus take raw raw numbers and raw static numbers to kind of do things. So there's there's a lot of things here that I think could really help you help folks that are trying to do things and make their organizations better be able to do that just because they're going to communicate things a lot better if they do it. Yep. Yep. And the second paper? Uh, the second paper is a really recent one, um, and it's from Dell SecureWorks. And it's the third annual, and it's either the third annual or the fourth annual, but I'm pretty sure it's the third annual, uh, Underground Hacker Markets. And you know, now, you, now everybody's probably shocked that we're talking about hacker things on the Data Driven Security <laughs> Podcast because we don't normally do that. But right. uh, this is a, a really, I think, and you know, Jay, you might have different opinion, but this is a really great resource because uh, they actually uh, bundled together some of the data that they've been gathering over the past uh, past two, uh, two reports into this one and show you a history of the prices of different things, like, you know, different data entities that, that attackers are going after and what the prices are, at least are on the markets that, that they tend to hang out on and be able to capture this information from. So you really have an idea about the value of some of the data bits that you hold in your organization, maybe in a way that, that you hadn't had before. And you can see how that's changed over time as well, too. So I thought it was a great, a great data resource Plus, it was kind of, a, I thought it was a fun read, too. It was actually, it was actually pretty well written. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think it is possible to take this and get nitpicking on some of the stats and, you know, wonder about biases in the data sources, things like that. But forget about that for just a second and try to think about, like, if you had to estimate how much is a credit card worth, I think that you would get a really large variety of responses if you started asking people. Right, you'd get oh, it's it's ten cents, it's ten dollars, it's a hundred dollars. You know, you'd get a really wide range. What I like about this paper is that it 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 gives numbers, and so it says right away in the beginning, the first thing in here is just a generic Visa and Mastercard. Recent price is seven dollars. 
Now, I mean, we were just talking about uncertainty, and I'm sure that there's some uncertainty and variance around the $7, and there's no communication of that. It's just $7. But that's great. I mean, like that, because we had, like for me, I didn't really have a number in my head. I probably would have guessed somewhere between, I don't know, $10 a, a card or something like that. Well, yeah, and, well, and we've heard for the past few years about how worthless, quote unquote, you know, these 16 digit numbers are or the combinations of that and the CBVs and stuff. And, and that, you know, the fact that it's gone up from $4 to $7. And again, you're right, there's a range there that we're not seeing, but whatever, whatever that, even with the, the uncertainty there, it's still gone up probably. And that, that's not a small jump either. And I'm, I'm guessing even with the, the intervals around it, it's probably still big too. Right. I, I actually, the, the number that, that I, I would be using. So if I were still working in an enterprise or I had to try to help people understand, why we should be protecting things because that's one of our jobs as cyber people in the enterprises is to communicate why we should be doing things, not just say no or yes. And um, like the corporate email accounts being $500 per mailbox, uh, I, I would so be able to use that to talk about exchange security and outsourced mail security and things like that. You know, basically use it to have a conversation in a way that you might not be able to do that if you didn't have that kind of data at hand. Yeah, no, I think this is really fabulous. Um... And, you know, I, like I said, there, there's some questions about how they're actually getting the data. Um, I think they mentioned they're focusing on Russian forums, English-speaking forums. And, uh, you know, I got to wonder is that uh, what, I mean, like, are these underground forums part of a single economy or are there multiple economies? Is there different for U.S.-based or Asian-based, you know, uh, different economies that these prices are going to fluctuate across these different economies, you know, all sorts of questions. But all of that aside, there is so much information in here. I just, I, I cannot talk about this enough about how great this is to have as a resource. Oh, totally. And actually, um, and while some of the ones don't have ranges of what things cost, there are tables in it which actually do show you ranges, but for, for things as well too. So they they weren't precise in like said they they didn't use that precision everywhere. They actually did give cost ranges for things too. So you can do uncertainty stuff. Matter of fact, this might be a fun thing to practice your uncertainty uh, visualizations from from the other paper for as you do that. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. You know, like uh, what's an example? Physical counterfeit social security card. Uh, recent price is one hundred and forty to two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, you know, I'd like a little bit more detail around that. But I mean, still, it's like I had no idea how much a counterfeit Social Security card would go for. And so just knowing somewhere between 140 and 250 is helpful. But I, I don't think I would try that, Bob, to, I don't know, create a distribution. of. I, I suppose you could do a, a beta part or something like that. Well, I mean, in, in theory, you you know, this this is a great way to segue into how to potentially measure anything in cybersecurity risk, right? Oh, that's a that's a good segue, Bob. So I was able to sit down with two gentlemen and talk about a new book that they're writing and uh, that's releasing, I believe it's October. Is it October, Bob? It's August 2016. August. Awesome. So that's just a few short months away. And I was able to sit down with Doug Hubbard and Richard Syerson. And this is pre-recorded, and Bob was not able to make that. Uh, but it was really great to sit down with these two guys. Uh, Doug Hubbard, for those who don't know him, he's the inventor of something called Applied Information Economics, uh, which is just an interesting approach trying to measure uh, uncertainty and things that are, are typically difficult to measure um, and measuring the value of information and things like that. He's written several books uh, before this. He's written How to Measure Anything, uh, with the subtitle of Finding the Value and in Intangibles in Business. 
And that is in its third edition, and it's just an absolutely essential book. Have you read that book, Bob? Uh, I actually scanned through that book since I, I don't have to do things in business a lot. I didn't really have to go through the whole thing, but okay. that was the first introduction to, to Hubbard's work for me. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, I, I think I read the first, or I think the first edition, and I loved it so much. And I was part of a uh, somewhat of a geeky book club back then, and I uh, got a bunch of people to sit around the table and talk about this book and and run through some of the, the details in there. Yeah, and, and what I will say about that book, though, is the the executives um, in previous, like, because I've only really been in Fortune 100 companies before now, and the executives that were some of the cooler ones to talk to in those orgs uh, were the ones that had gone through his book. So they actually had an understanding of how to think in terms of like this. So right. it was a lot It was a lot more fun and a lot more engaging talking to folks who had had basically thought, had used this as a way of forming their thought processes around how to measure stuff. So yeah, I think there is, I think there is value into that, yeah. Doug Hubbard has written some other books too, The Failure of Risk Management. And anybody who's dealing with risk in any way should absolutely uh, grab that book and read it because it it's really, it's a little bit of a condemning overview of the state of risk management, not just in cybersecurity, especially in cybersecurity, but not just in cybersecurity. Yeah, I, I actually loved that book. That, that, that was actually a really good book, mostly because it, it talked about failure of things, which is kind of fun to put. <laughs> and he's got some other books, a book called Pulse, uh, Harnessing Internet Buzz, uh, that kind of a thing. And, and it's by our publisher too. So he published it through Wiley just to, yep. just to give them a nod. Yep, absolutely. And he sold over what it says, uh, he sold over 100,000 copies of his books in five different languages. Uh, so incredibly successful uh, books. And he also, he's the founder of Hubbard Decision Research. And so if you need someone, if you want to bring someone in to help you measure things that are incredibly hard to get a, a handle on, uh, Hubbard and his group are, are the folks to do that. I, I just did a back of the envelope calculation though, Jay, um, and it looks like that by 2063, we, we may have sold 100,000 copies of data driven security. <laughs> At the current rate. At the right. current rate, if, if the current rate holds, yeah. Which I'm sure it will through 2063. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> nice, good, good math work there, Bob. And the, uh, the other gentleman joining us is Richard Syerson. Now, uh, what Doug is doing is he's writing these how to measure anything across a couple of different disciplines. And the first one he chose was cybersecurity. And he'll talk about that in the interview. And uh, he, he joined with Richard Cyrus. And now Richard is, is one of us, right? He's a, a cybersecurity guy uh, with well over 20 years of experience. And um, he's currently at uh, GE Healthcare. And he's uh, just a really down to earth guy. And what I, what I really like is that he's, uh, I, I don't know how to quite pull this. Um, he doesn't pull punches, and he he's pretty much a straight shooter and a really great guy to partner with. Yeah, he is pragmatic and honest. You guys are going to love – I mean, there's a little bit of a buzz in his in his mic, but you're going to love uh, his, his take on things. It's, 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 it's really great. That was my favorite part of the interview. Yep. And I started out uh, asking both of them to talk about the book and exactly what is the book about. It's a franchise or spinoff book from my first book, How to Measure Anything. And uh, I, the plan is for me to do a whole series of how to measure anything books, different topics, how to measure anything project management or enterprise risk management or, or healthcare or human resources or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the task was to pick what's a good first topic. And after a lot of consideration, it looked like cybersecurity was one, it had a, a good size audience. It was uh, bedeviled with a lot of uh, interesting measurement challenges. And we thought we could add a lot to it. 
so what else what else is unique or different about cybersecurity that that really made you take this one on first well it just it was really a topical uh, issue it seemed like there was a lot of concern about it a lot of worry about it and while the threat or risk has grown a lot it didn't seem to me that the actual methods of assessing risk had changed much in fact they were still extremely rudimentary uh, they were almost like any industry that was first setting out to consider risk analysis the first steps and that's kind of where it was uh, and is uh, mostly right now there's a huge mismatch uh, between uh, the capabilities of risk management and cybersecurity right now and the size of the growing threat. Well, I think it created a predicament and something that really does need solving. It's become an increasingly serious risk, as we all know, and the measurement methodologies that we were using were um, invented, you know, essentially over and over again using, I think, what would be considered questionable mathematics and other things. And I think done in the right spirit, of course, it wasn't that people were purposely you know, conspiring to make security worse, but in the aggregate, it, it seemed to be heading in that direction. And so, um, at least from my perspective, the reason I got interested in this and looking at Doug was I wanted to look outside myself. I, I knew that measurement and math and things like that, that there's a lot of expertise outside of the security domain, and we should be uh, we should be looking at that and trying to bring in or steal whatever we can. And so I just think it was really topical in the right time, particularly in, in light of the ever-expanding attack surface, particularly with the you know, industrial Internet of Things, uh, some, some of the things I'm encountering in my current work as well. And so it just it made a lot of sense to say, let's look at some real tried and tested methodologies. And the innovation is just taking those tried and tested methodologies and bringing those into security. That's the true innovation. Right. As you're doing that, are you finding that there are very unique measurement challenges or, or analysis challenges when it comes to cybersecurity? Or is it really just that there's like a, a corpus of knowledge out there and you're simply applying it then to security as a whole? Well, I get the opportunity to consult in a lot of different fields and a lot of different kinds of specialties and professions, you know, mergers and acquisitions or the risk of new medical devices or engineering project management. Um, or environmental policy in any of those fields. And I would say that it's not uncommon for me in various fields to hear how, comp how uniquely complicated uh, someone's field is. You know, so it seems like everybody says that. I was hearing an impassioned argument. My last uh, project we wrapped up last year was uh, a, large, uh, a, a large project for a large... Uh, a retirement home uh, uh, business and they were uh, valuing the retirement home and uh, the owner uh, was given was uh, given his explanation for why he thought this was the most complicated business and it was an impassioned uh, case and it's a case I've heard many times from many uh, people and uh, I guess everybody believes their own situation is particularly you know, complex and difficult. Uh, so I see that from a lot of different fields. Now, I've heard this many times in cybersecurity, that cybersecurity is unique because it has human actors. Mm -hmm. 
Intelligent adversaries. Intelligent adversaries. As if there had never been insurance against, you know, theft, fraud, kidnapping, etc. Right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's unique because technology is changing so fast, right? Uh, as if that's not the case in aerospace and consumer electronics, etc. Right? It's unique because there's so many moving parts or something to that effect, as if that's not the case in most most other fields. But the fact is, is that all we have to do is outperform current methods. If you want a method to be valuable, you have to outperform current methods. And so we use the Voltaire expression, the perfect is the enemy of the good, quite a lot. And sometimes people will challenge quantitative methods because they're not perfect. Well, our response is, is that current methods certainly are not perfect. But one of them is less imperfect than the other. That's the, the way to think of it. That's, that's the relevant comparison. So yeah, I, I do hear that a lot. And in some ways, every industry is unique. And so they're almost uniformly unique, if that's yeah. the, the paradox yeah. that you can state. And I, I love that perfect is the enemy of the good. I think that that's a, a very critical thing. And I think in security, we have so many um what's the correct word cynics would that be the correct word um skeptical people uh that when they see something and, and it's new or it's different and they can point out flaws and things like that they're very quick to to throw that aside and say ah, that's that's imperfect you know we're going to get rid of that right well and i i'm a fan of being uh, a skeptic uh in that sense but the the problem is they're not skeptical enough their skepticism seems to be one-sided. They're not skeptical of their current methods and their current intuition right. and their gut feel. I say be skeptical of that as well. Be equally skeptical. Decide in advance how you're going to measure the performance of those two and compare them objectively. Also, I'll say that oftentimes people who are kind of poking fun at quantitative risk management, I wonder if they're really dealing with big problems. Um, the reason I'm interested in this is because I, for the past 10 years, I've been dealing with critical infrastructure and, and I would say large scale as security as it gets sorts of problems where we're having to, you know, aggregate and make large decisions with large dollars over, you know, over large risks. And, you know, what gets lost when you have bad risk management is the, the professional opinion. And I think that a lot of the skeptics also are probably saying, look at, I'm going to trust my gut. I'm going to trust my education. I'm going to trust my background. I'm going to trust my experience. And that risk stuff that you're talking about, that's going to dilute what I'm doing. And our response is, you know, it's going to get diluted anyways because we have to aggregate and make big decisions over just big issues, right? We want to choose the method that's going to amplify the right things from your experience, right? Mm -hmm. And not dilute the, you know, dilute the right things, right? We want to keep your expertise intact. And in fact, we want to be able to take a 50, 60, pen testers in my team or people involved in, you know, instant response, you know, forensics, what have you. I want to make sure that I'm doing methods that actually don't dilute that as I look to aggregate and make better decisions. Um, and I would argue that the methodology that we use in risk management gets kind of quasi-risk slash compliance management. I would argue that those methods don't do that. They don't respect the individual. They are going to be used. And so you can, you can keep complaining if you like, but my, my perspective would be that you need to probably stop, get a little education and start moving towards those sorts of practices that are actually going to retain your expertise. And by the way, if you're complaining, also look at the size of the risks that you're dealing with. If you're dealing with international, large-scale risks, maybe you don't need to be worried about these things. People like myself, like Doug, and like UJ, mm -hmm. we do. Right.
So I want to call out the, the, the most prominent risk analysis method out there is the, the risk matrix, right? We're given things a high, medium, low, and likelihood and the high, medium, low, and the impact or consequence or whatever the, the term may be to label that stuff. Do you guys address that directly in the book and, and try to take that on and, and talk about the, the strengths and weaknesses of that approach? We spend all of one chapter and mention it a bit in a, a couple of other chapters, we talk about it so extensively. Um, my primary concern was that we were beating a dead horse <laughs> primarily, but I really wanted to put uh, the final nail in the coffin. And I, I hope we've accomplished that. I hope we've said, look, the jury is in on this stuff. It has been measured. You know, they have been weighed. It's been found wanting, right? And not just found wanting, it's it actually adds error to the decision-making process. So every objective measure of every aspect of the risk matrix, whether it's the simply applying verbal labels to risk or applying ordinal scales to likelihood and then impact or plotting the two of them on a risk matrix, every step in that whole process has actually been examined uh, by independent researchers, not, not us, we're just combining everybody's research all in one pile. And if we could find research that said that people who are using risk matrices actually made better estimates and not just a testimonial or placebo response, right? Because everyone's going to feel better mm -hmm. about their risk assessment by going through a, what seems like a formal process. So we're talking about objective measures. If there were anything that showed that there was an objectively measurable improvement in estimates and decisions by using the risk matrix, we would have cited that. We looked for it. There's none. And there's been so many studies. They all come out in one direction. They all come out in the direction of this stuff doesn't work. And even if there was some possibility of a future study or some version of this that could actually be an improvement, we just step back and ask, why would you need to worry about it since they're already are methods that have shown a measurable improvement in large clinical trials. There already are better methods. We don't have to invent better methods. So there are methods that have been tested in large clinical trials and have been used for decades in many industries where every component of those methods have been tested over and over again. And we know that people actually make measurably better estimates and decisions. It's not just a, you know, testimonial or best practices or you know a gut feel or, or placebo effect we were thinking of subtitling the book why scoring sucks but we, we pulled back to that <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i i just think it's time to you know exactly you know rich is is not any good at pulling punches and i guess i i'm not either um and we really just had to say look you know we really just gotta let's just put this one to bed Let's not talk about, well, over time, we need to transition from this and whatever. No, we just need to stop using that and make a 180 degree turn and use a different set of methods. That's what we're proposing. I get asked a lot, you know, well, how do you implement this? What's, you know, where's the rubber meet the road? And obviously the book's going to talk about that. There'll be some tools there. But one of the things I would encourage, be they executives or even individual contributors, try to... At, when you have a risk you're looking at, even if it's a piecemeal thing, maybe it's as small as a, a vulnerability or maybe it's some larger aggregation of risk, try to ask yourself, can I turn that into an on, an on or off? Can it be Boolean? Can it be yes or no? 
If you're already thinking that way, you're already heading in a better direction. By the way, if you start asking those sorts of questions of yourself, you'll start getting into what sort of evidence do I have, mm -hmm. right? Do I actually have evidence that's actually, is there some empirical evidence somewhere? So the thing is, risk matrices where we want to get start getting away from the scoring, which just really amplifies ambiguity. Can we get to on and off? That's just one step in the right direction. That's just that's the type of thing I'm working at where I currently work and in other domains. Can we get rid of these? Again, this, this one through ten scale, this red, you know, yellow, blue, or you know, red, green, yellow, whatever the case is, and get to more uh, boolean. If you have somebody invent a risk analysis method from whole cloth. I think nine times out of 10, it seems, they come up with some sort of a risk scoring method. And we just asked the question, number one, how do we know it works? And why don't existing methods work? And whenever I hear someone explain why existing methods won't work or actuarial methods or something to that effect won't work, um, I always find out upon further investigation that they're just unfamiliar with those alternative methods. They're speaking from a, a blind spot they make assertions about what quantitative methods can or can't do, but they don't actually know them. You know, so for example, somebody will say, you know, actuarial methods only work when there's millions of data points. Actually, no, that's not the case. Not only I make that case in my first two books and, uh, but my philosophies aren't anything new to them. I, in a way, I just sort of recast a lot of stuff that's been around for quite a while. I'm, I'm more of a, a fan of those methods uh, than an innovator uh, in those methods. I just want to represent them. Uh, so uh, I think there's a lot of neat methods. I mean, somebody, for example, insured the channel. I looked it up once. I forgot who it was who insured the channel. Um, and how many data points of channel building projects were there were before, you know? I mean, I mean, you know what I mean, the channel between the uh, England and France uh, under the English channel. How did they insure that? Well, it's a classic case of having more data than you think and needing less than you think. Of course, there was lots of data on other kinds of projects, and it's not as if we have no data in cybersecurity. There's quite a lot of data in cybersecurity, but people have also had these impressions about how much data you need in order to apply statistics. You know, you know how many data points you need to apply statistics if you get to use Bayesian methods? It's one. The first one actually updates your prior probabilities. Uh, and then the second one updates it more, and the third one updates it more. So there's actually math for that. And if you, if anybody took uh, college stats, I guarantee them, if they still have their college stats textbook, there's a whole chapter on small samples for sample sizes less than 30. So they seem to remember just enough of statistics to kind of get it all wrong. Uh, they remember that they need some, you know, giant sample size to, to make any inferences. And this is not true. We need very small sample sizes to do slightly better than our gut feel, which is what we're going for. And that, you know, that sample size of 30, I think I've heard that over and over. I just had it at, at work last week where someone said, well, it's, that's less than 30. We can't, uh, we can't do anything with that. And... Yeah, that's, they're, they're just misremembering what they were taught because I'm pretty sure, I think it's more likely that they're misremembering that, than that their stats professor said it wrong. Um, 30 is the threshold for when you can start using something called the Z statistic. For sample sizes less than 30, you get to use something called the student T statistic for small samples. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just the threshold when two different statistics, you know, uh, apply. Uh, so yeah, there's no such thing. Uh, there's no such thing as a statistically significant sample size. 
um, it's it's a classic myth in, in statistics. If someone says the phrase statistically significant sample size, that means they don't know what those words mean. Okay, well, you know, when you guys did your RSA talk, you had in the in the description that our thesis is that we compete with the bad guys on analytics, which I love. I love that statement. Could you guys expand on that and what you meant by it? Sure, I'll jump in there. I'm, I'm guilty of that. And I really mean it in, in, in particular, I mean it for the, the executive or the leader, like the security leader. It applies for everybody, by the way. I'm not going to exclude the uh, individual contributor. But when I think about what my role is, right, my job is to make decisions typically related to you know millions of dollars and that's going to be protecting billions right and that the the hand-to-hand -hand combat i'm having with the bad guy in, in that sort of conversation is about analytics right it's about taking data points oftentimes by the way uh going using sparse data analytics right which you'll hear about in the book and trying to make some sort of uh decision by the way i'm not taking my sausage factory of analytics and then presenting it to the board or anyone else they're expecting me to make a decision my job is to make a good decision, yes or no, this or not, and be somewhat impassioned about it. I'm not going to then go pull out a bunch of numbers, um, particularly in my environment. They all, <laughs> half the people have PhDs, and I'm not going to, you know, blind them to science. But it's my job as a leader is to, is as a, I guess, as a person involved in combat, as a defender, to really make great decisions in light of the information that I have. And that's how I fight. That's my job. And I'd say any CISO, anyone, like, is that's how they're supposed to do hand-to-hand -hand combat with the bad guy. So that's really where that comes from. We compete with the bad guy in analytics. Security talent and technology are parameters to a model. That's the full statement. You heard that here, by the way. So anyways, <laughs> but that's, my, that's really my perspective on this, and we, we talk about that in the book. Do you guys have any favorite parts of the book when, you know, as you're going back and you're looking at it, you think, boy, that's the, that's the best part right there. Is there a part in the book that sticks out for each of you? I really like uh, Doug's uh, chapter nine, where he really goes into Bayes and we uh, really go in depth on the beta distribution. I've, you know, it's been a really great learning for me to see how we can apply some relatively standard practices. So I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I, I actually like the uh, first chapter. I think we told the, the story. It, by the way, the first chapter is to really get the, the general reader uh, aware of the, the realities of the security, right? Someone like you, Jay, or someone who's a really hardened uh, security professional might find that a little more passe. But I actually thought I, I really liked that as well. So I'd say, you know, chapter nine and chapter one are kind of standouts for me. I like it all of them. Yeah, chapter one, chapter one might be a little bit of speaking to the choir for most people, preaching to the choir, that is, mm -hmm. for most of the people who would actually buy the book. But uh, one of the chapters that I think will be important is chapter three, which is the one-for-one -one substitution chapter. And that's where we say, okay, let's put this whole complexity thing, thing to rest in terms of the method. Uh, don't be intimidated by the complexity of quantitative methods because here's a quantitative method that literally has no more steps than your current risk matrix. And the, the steps that have a little bit of math in it, we're just giving you spreadsheets you can download. So you, the reader can just download spreadsheets. So the only parts that have any math in it at all are things that you download. So you don't have to know how to uh, write out, you know, a formula for generating a random log normal distribution in Excel, although we explain that in, Excel, in, in the chapter as well. You can download the whole thing. You're still doing the same thing you just did with a risk matrix. You're assessing a likelihood and you're assessing an impact. The difference is, is now the likelihood is actually a probability per year of the, of the specified event, okay, not a scale of one to five or something like that. 
And the impact is a 90% confidence interval on a log normal distribution, right? So impact isn't a three or a four, right? You might have a lot of uncertainty about the impact. You might have to have a wide range on it. And so we allow for that. And then, of course, we make the case that uh, you can do those things when you're calibrated. We have a whole chapter on calibration, which is uh, largely rewritten. A couple of the chapters are heavily borrowed from the uh, earlier books. And we say right at the beginning that this is almost entirely the same as the chapter in the uh, in the earlier book. So if you've read it, you can skip over it. But we include those because it would be hard to make the case without it, including a couple of the same chapters. Uh, so, for example, we have the chapter on calibration, training people to subjectively assess probabilities. So when they say, well, that's great to get you know quantitative, but where do the probabilities come from? Well, they come from the same place that the scores came from before. They come from you, except that your skill at assessing a probability has been measured. We know how well people can be trained at assessing subjective probabilities, whereas in terms of assessing scores, what we know is we know how much ambiguity it adds and miscommunication it adds. So I, I, I forgot to say, also a big fan of Chapter 3 in that, that where we really do a layup, right? We say, look, here talking about risk matrix, here's how you can do a one-for-one -one substitution and simplify things down. Kind of like almost like a training wheel uh, approach to getting started. So I think it's it's really, really good. Um, it, the final section of the book gets into more kind of enterprise-y concerns, and we actually present a, um, a security um, measurement uh, maturity model, actually. Um, and it, it starts with uh, sparse data analytics, right, where you're dealing with a minimal amount of information, big risks, or maybe you're starting, you're starting your program out, you're trying to make some decisions, all the way up through um, uh, prescriptive analytics, right? So we actually, I, I pass through this uh, bit approach to business intelligence, taking into consideration modern infrastructure. Again, more, more topical or futurist in nature, and then we get into the prescriptive analytics. The only reason I bring this up is that if I were to think about a, a second book or a follow-on, I think it would be that, where we really bring together uh, data science and decision science together into prescriptive analytics using, um, again, a post-infrastructure perspective, using really large data sets, um, probably a little bit more Cody in nature. Um, so I did enjoy that section. Um, it's, it, again, it's, it's a section that really is deserving of a, a large, large book, but more to point to the future where I think things can go. And so I, I did enjoy that as well, and my, my hope would be to, to follow up on some of that in a, in a future day. Rich is saying, if you, if you heard that, Rich is saying prescriptive analytics, not predictive analytics. So how do you define the difference there between the two? Predictive analytics is all about describing something, estimating something that will happen, right? Whereas prescriptive analytics actually gets into the payoff functions in the game theory, decision theory side of it, right? What do you do with it at that point? So now I've got it, uh, predictive analytics has generated a whole bunch of cool charts and dashboard kind of things for me. So now what, what do I do? Do I hope that my intuition will successfully recognize the conditions on this complicated dashboard of when to act and what to do? Is that my strategy? After investing so much in predictive analytics, uh, I hope that I'll see the signal and the noise. No, we're saying predictive analytics has to feed directly into a decision model. So my, my security career started out building you know, vulnerability assessment solutions and IDS solutions that's, as a software developer, and did that for a number of years. And during that time, you know, we started talking about vulnerability management. Then there became security event management, right? Even now we have threat management, right? This management term keeps 
coming up. And the, the reason the management term is coming up is because of all the noise, right? This is a recognized fact, even when we're just dealing with deterministic stuffs, um, we're dealing with you know way too much information. And so the theory was that these uh, the management parts of these solutions would help us rank order what we need to do next, what's what's most important. Um, the reality is is what we've done is we've now gotten headlong you know, head over heels in love with uh, data science. We love data science. You've heard, by the way, you've heard the joke, what, what's a data scientist? It's a st statistician that works in San Francisco. But anyway, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, we, now what we're doing is we're, we're taking non-deterministic information, somewhat fuzzy information, lower fidelity, right, uh, important stuff at lower fidelity, and adding it into what was already a problem, already a management problem. Well, what, what is the solution in this area? I, what I believe is more of what we call more of a prescriptive analytic approach. Maybe you can call it an approach that's somewhat expert system, I'd, I'd say it is the merging, though, of data science and decision science, so we can start m making better decisions. For example, when you do see information and it's not, you know, deterministic in nature, what, as in, you know, IR forensics, what do you actually chase? You have limited resources. IR forensics people are very expensive. Um, it may end up being uh, not so fruitful. Or you can stick with just chasing the pornographers on your network, right? What's it going to be? Or the anti are the antivirus that didn't clean? You have to go help somebody, right? Well, when do you know what to go follow? That's a, that's a you know, artificial intelligence kind of decision analysis problem predicated on a lot of data. I've seen, you know, I, get, I get pitched next generation SEM stuff with the best data science from whatever all the time. And in every single case, when it comes to the management solution, this, the M part, it seems like that part of their brain, they, they take out a knife and give themselves a lobotomy, and they remove all the great math they applied from, to find the bad guys, right, the non-deterministic stuff, and they go back to the same old crappy um, algorithms for trying to uh, you know, solve this management problem, and they're all failing. Yeah. And th the problem is, this is the problem. Management is the problem. Right, off my little soapbox. I've been thinking about that a lot because, I mean, when you look at data science within security and you look at analytics being applied, you see a lot of supporting hunters, supporting the SEM, you know, trying to find that that one, you know, detecting that one intrusion and, and focusing on that and very, very little out there in cybersecurity looking at risk analysis or, as you put, you know, decision support and the management aspect. And I think I think that's something lacking in our industry. Well, right. So, so we'll, what if we find out? Gosh, in the, over the last uh, week, um, in terms of you know malware, we were able to determine the survival you know survival rate of this variant of malware was on average, let's say, 30 days. And we, we know this um, after the fact because our eventually our systems caught up and we cleaned it. But what does that tell you about the likelihood of there being a larger campaign going on? Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this is kind of I mean, kind of softballing this, but. We never ask those sorts of questions. So you got, got clean, moved on, I'm busy. Can I do the next one? Oh, got to go do this, you know. And we're overwhelmed. And we wonder why we find out, you know, 300 days later that there's been a campaign going on. We could have done some basic survival analysis, put it through some really fundamentals, kind of, you know, more of a Bayesian approach, maybe a Bayesian network, what have you, and made some great decisions, potentially, and chased those rabbits. But we don't, security field doesn't even begin to think about that. And it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So when, uh, when people read this book, well, actually, I have a two-part question. So who is the book written for? Who is the target audience? And then what do you expect or what were you hoping that they walk away with from reading it? It's for you. Did you pre-order your copy yet? <laughs> I almost did. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Totally on my list. Well, I would say in, at one level, it's for anybody who's 
tried to make or had to read somebody's risk matrix uh, in cybersecurity. So, uh, or uh, that's certainly one group. We're trying to get at that group, which is a pretty large group in cybersecurity, right? That's uh, quite a lot of people were saying, stop doing that, start doing this. Uh, so there's that. But of course, even uh, cybersecurity experts who aren't using those methods, and maybe they are, have, have been struggling with their own quantitative approach. And there are plenty of quantitative solutions out there. My hope is that the C-suite reads at least portions of it, perhaps the first uh, few chapters and then section three, and then forces their staff to read it. I mean, I really do hope CIO, CTO, CISO, CRO, what have you, do pick it up. Um, but it is very practitioner-oriented. A lot of the middle chapters, they have spreadsheets, they have tools, um, they have step-by-step -step, uh, approaches to, to application, right? So it's my hope it's the broad swath of people. And listen, I, I think you know security impacts everybody personally, mm -hmm. right? We all have an attack surface. We're all getting impacted. And so I think it's, it, it provides a palette for really talking about quantitative approaches that could be applied to a variety of domains. So it, it is my hope that we get a broad readership. I expect we're going to get a lot of practitioners in the security space, a lot of risk folks. Um, but my, my hope is that there'll be some, uh, again, the C-suite as well will we'll read it and it'll help them make some decisions and help them, particularly about the types of organizations they'll build and approaches they want to take. So along, along the lines of targeting that C-level executive, are you hoping that they're going to read this and start to challenge some of the methods that people put in front of them or just be more informed or what are you hoping for from the C-level? Um, for me, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that they will start uh, questioning the methods that are you know, be currently being used and start advocating for some of the methods that we're putting forth. That's, that's my hope. Um, yeah, we want, to see, we want to see change. We think it's important. We're losing. I think one of the reasons we're losing is the nature of the leadership and the methodologies we're, uh, we're choosing. So, yeah, I hope that they take it and use it. Yeah, good. Well, do you have any advice for people who are looking to uh, create a book? I have, a, I have another important piece of advice. Um, if you're going to write a book for your first time, co-write with a best-selling author. That's, <laughs> that's what I recommend. <laughs> that's pretty good advice. So, by the way, I'll, Jay, I'll say one thing. I know your book, you guys, I think you guys did a lot of R in your book, a lot of programming. We, I did a very minimal amount in the book. Uh, we had Excel. And we didn't want to get, we didn't want it to be overly technical in that regard. We were really more trying to expose, but tools are all there. So there. But one of the commitments I made at RSA, which you may have heard, is I'm actually going to be taking all of Doug's methods, um, rewriting them in both R and Python, and, and publishing those um, up on our our site. So that'll be happening soon as well. Probably come out one after the other, but uh, we'll be looking to have those tools out there um, as well. Fantastic. That'll be great to have those out there. So both R and Python. Yeah, I'm just, I'm saying it. So, I, so I'm like forcing myself to do it. So I just keep saying it. I <laughs> say it a lot public. Now. I say it a lot public. Yeah, I say a lot publicly. So now I like, have to do it. But no, I, I want to, I want to do that. By the way, it's just, it's kind of interesting. I know that people think Excel is like, you know, and I've even probably been guilty of this. Like, oh, Excel, it's, you know, it's like not cool. It's not shiny. But, uh, you know, it, Microsoft is making some pretty big commitments um, on, on that solution where it'll be uh, combining it with some other legacy technology that they've kind of tucked away. They're bringing it back in. Well, it'll be able to um, handle multi-billion billion, billion row capacity. They're really trying yeah. to make it a, a major um, analytic platform. Yeah. 
And they also purchased Revolution R, what, about a year and a half ago? And, you know, they're getting working R into SQL Server. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's going to be some R hooks or within Excel, you know, be able to put some R code right into cells. Exactly. Well, fantastic. Do you guys have any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to leave listeners with? I'll say one thing for the audience that chooses to listen. We are in or even more so heading into a post-infrastructure world, right, where most of the infrastructure, um, we won't own that part of the stack. We might, we might um, own the, the making of software that's going to go in the stack, you know, mm -hmm. you know, sewing together microservices and what have you. We'll be the data processor, perhaps, but we, there's just so much of that stack that we will not, we will increasingly not own. And as we abstract up the the, the stack, as yeah. it were, the amount of risk we own again becomes uh, it's very different, right? It's different from the old old days, right? Less infrastructure, and I think it means more of an analytic game. I think it means the security profession and fraud analytics and things like that starts merging more. And I'm placing a big bet: if you're not developing these skills you will be irrelevant in five to 10 years. Unless you work for an Amazon, you're one of the guys in the plum, back in the plumbing, right, that's turning a wrench. Um, if you're gonna be working in a you know, commercially intense environment where it's post infrastructure, dealing with large abstractions, you have to develop analytic skills if you're gonna be a defender. You absolutely have to. So there's a little prediction for you with force. That's fantastic. All right, well, thank you guys so much for your time and thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. So, so, Jay, one thing that I really liked about that whole interview, um, beyond the fact that both folks are just super smart and they had a lot of really good info, and I think it was a good intro to the book, uh, but at the end when uh, Richard especially was talking about prescriptive analytics, prescriptive, sorry, analytics, uh, I, I thought that was a really great pragmatic way to talk about maybe where some of the focus on all this cybersecurity, machine learning, data science, whatever kind of buzzwords that people want to throw at it these days, you know, maybe that's where a lot of people should be focusing more effort into than some of the raw, can we find you know, the, a, a, a little bit of gold in all this straw that, that we're trying to mine from IP addresses and, and domain names and everything, right? So like, if you could actually be using all this data in your organization to provide better decision support to your operations folks, to your risk folks, to your identity management folks, uh, I think that would provide a lot of value to orgs. Like, I, I, I don't know if you thought the same thing when he was talking that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, all of this data has to do something. It has to drive some kind of an action or create some kind of a decision. Now, I know from my perspective, coming from a statistics background now, to, to look at this data and try to present it, I'm trying to, you know, we were just talking about communicating uncertainty at the beginning of the podcast. What that prescriptive is, is the opposite of that, is to take all of that uncertainty and just say, here's what you should do, right? We wanna be prescriptive. We wanna say, given all of this information, here's what you should do. Exactly, and so folks that have been around for a while, because we, I, I know we do have some listeners that, that, that fit that category, I, I, I fit that category. You, you may start to get that little bit of a cringe from the good old days of, of business intelligence and business analytics when this was a kind of a hot topic back then too. And this isn't a rehash and a revisit of of you know, basically just trying to do marketing or architecture type stuff. This is really, I think, now that we actually really do truly have good access to data, and it's in all parts of the business, but we're talking about cyber on, on, on this podcast, we have really good data now. Like We can't complain that we don't have data. We have ways of measuring it 
Um, and, and honestly, I, I do think folks will be able to figure out something that they can measure that they weren't measuring before if they do read this book in August. And yeah. when you've got this data and you know how things should work with it and you can apply it, this is an actual really great tangible outcome that folks will be able to see direct benefit of where you may not be able to do that same thing from a machine learning algorithm on domain names or on something else that you're trying to do. And this could have a, an impact, I think, at a higher level in the business versus some of the more discrete operations that exist you know, in the, the IT security teams themselves too. So I, I think you'll be able to see, see some really cool effects if you try to look at marrying some of the things that we've been talking about over the past 20 odd episodes and moving into this realm of prescriptive analytics. I hope people, people pay really good attention to that part of the book when it comes out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this coming out in August. Well, Bob, thank you for joining me for episode 28 of the Data Driven Security Podcast. Good to be here again, Jay. And we'll talk to you next time.